This morning, our reading is from uh, both, uh, both from the Old Testament. We'll be, have two separate passages. The first passage is from the first chapter of Genesis, uh, verses 1 through 28. And I read. It's only 11 through 28. I'm sorry? Should be oh, only so, 11 I'm, I'm sorry, 11 through 28. You're right. Um, and God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit trees bearing fruit, in which there is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kind, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heaven to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so, and God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth. Subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Our second passage is from Psalm 80, and it's verses 1 through 9. And I read, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have established and strength, established strength because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. 
When I look at your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him little lower than than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beast of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be be to God. God. What makes human beings so special? What is it that makes a human being any more valuable or any more dignified than an ape or a dolphin, or a horse, or for that matter, what makes a man, woman, boy, or girl more valuable than an oak tree, or an amoeba, or a piece of plastic? If you ask an average person that question, you know, why are human beings... Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't dismiss the kids. Sorry, I was just excited about the text. So if we have little ones first grade and under, want to go to children's worship, go right ahead. It's not like I'm about to get into a bunch of content that's inappropriate for them. They could stay. But if you want to go over there, feel free, kiddos. So if we ask the person on the street, why is a human being any more valuable, any more dignified than any other thing on this planet, we'd probably get a lot of different answers. How do you think people might respond? Some might say, well, it's consciousness. Humans have the ability to think. Humans have the ability to reason, and that sets us apart. That makes us dignified. Others would say, well, it's our capacity for love that sets us apart. Others might say, well, it's free will. We're given will. We have volition, and that makes us dignified and different. Even people who believe that we evolved from lower life forms would still say that a human life has worth. But why? What makes us so special? For millennia, for thousands of years, virtually every culture of humanity has believed that human beings have some special dignity. Let me give you a few examples. The first one from ancient Israel, no doubt you know Exodus 20. You shall not murder as though human life is distinct, is important, is Valuable, but it's not just the Jews who believe this. Here's one from ancient Greece. The enemies of Israel, they believed the same thing. They said, terrify not men, or God will terrify thee. If you are a horror to people, the gods will be a horror to you. People are special. But it's not just the ancient Near East that believed humans are dignified. Here's something from Old Norse teaching. In Nastron, which, or their version of hell, I saw murderers. So even the Vikings <laughs> believed that there was some pillaging and killing that was not okay, that would land you in hell. From ancient Babylon, the great enemies of Israel who took them into exile, what did they say? Whoever mediates oppression, his dwelling is overturned. They saw the dignity of humans. Of their rights. And then, of course, we can't neglect ancient Greece. Cicero himself said, Nature urges that a man should wish human society to exist and should wish 
to enter it. Humanity is good, is different, even is better, Cicero says, than the rest of creation. So there must be something about humans that is special. That so many different cultures over such a long stretch of time would deem them so worthy of respect, honor, protection, justice, and life. But what is it? What is this universal characteristic of humans that makes them so different? Well, as we saw last week, what the Bible teaches is that it is the image of God imprinted on every human being. God created humans in his image. That is, every individual human being reflects something, images forth something of God. Now, none of us are just like God, right? Our reflections of God are necessarily limited because we're creatures, not the creator. And also our reflections of God are shattered and warped because of our sinfulness. But despite that, we are still created in the image of God. There's something about every human being that is almost divine in its dignity and beauty. So that even the unregenerate man can look at people and say something different about this. There's something special about this. But what is it? What is this image, this reflection of God that you can see in any human being? Let's go back to our text and dig into that a bit more. And here's what we're going to learn. The image of God, this idea in Genesis and Psalms, other places, this idea of the image of God implies two things, and it directly communicates two things. So there's two implications baked into the idea of the image of God, but there's two things being very explicitly communicated. So let's look at the first of the two implications. First, the image of God implies a contrast. When we say that humans are made in the image of God, that's saying there are some other things that are not made in the image of God. So there is a contrast, and we are different from those other things. For example, humans are different from plants, animals, and angels. Humans are different from plants, animals, and angels. Let's see it in our text. We are going to jump back and forth between Genesis 1 and Psalm 8, but we'll start with Genesis 1. You can pull your Bible out. It's okay to, to read along with me. You've got to keep the preacher honest. Genesis 1, verses 11 and 12. God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Jump forward to verse 21. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Verse 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So he makes plants according to their kinds. He makes the sea creatures according to their uh, That's right. You're, you're getting a hang of it. And then he makes the, the, the living creatures that walk the earth and the great sea creatures according to their But then it changes in verse 26. And it says, Then God said... 
Let us make man not after their own kind. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So when God made plants and animals, he made them according to their kinds. So there are trees and there are bears and there are ferrets. And there are all kinds of things, like seaweed even, right? Do you know what a human being is? Something entirely different. It's like a whole different creation. A human being is not a plant. A human being is not an animal. Because humans weren't made after their own kinds. I was talking to my kids about this this week, and one of my kids corrected me. He said, no, Dad, uh, uh, humans are animals. And I said, wrong. They're not animals. We aren't made after our own kind. We were made to be like God. So humans, biblically, stand over and above the animal and plant kingdoms. We are a separate, special thing. We are a special creation of God. Now, you might be thinking, what are you saying about evolution here, man? My view on this has changed over the years, and you can believe what you want. I believe this is like on the, the list of important beliefs, I I have this one pretty low, actually. I I have become convinced since I've lived here that the earth is really, really old. And I'm really comfortable with the idea of evolution over a very long period of time. Feel free to disagree with me. It's all right. No, No worries. However, I cannot believe that humans evolve from a lower life form. Why? First and lesser, I don't think the science holds up. I, I, I see a lot of holes there. And you can speak to our biologist who's here, and he can, he can speak to it more uh, clearly than I can. But more important to me, what this scripture says about humans is something different. We were made special to be like God. We didn't descend from any other kind. We are creatures, but we're not plants or animals. But that's not the only contrast in this idea we're made in the image of God. So we're not animals. We're certainly not plants. But we're also different from angels. So jump over. Hold your finger there in Genesis 1. We'll be back. I just pulled my bookmark out. Psalm 8. It's going to take me a second. Psalm chapter 8. Let's look at verses 3 through 9 to see the contrast between us and angels. It says in verse 3, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place... John was out on a sailboat this week in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico, and he could see the Milky Way. You felt pretty small in in, in that abyss of the sky, didn't you? The beauty of God's creation. You look up at that and you say, verse 4, What is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him in the face of all this beauty and majesty. Verse 5 says, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the work of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Oh, Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So get this. We were made a little lower than the heavenly beings, but we were crowned with glory and honor. And what that means is even angels 
weren't made in the image of God. That's why the psalmist says, what's man? That you're mindful of him, the son of man, that you care for him, yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You would think that angels would be worthy of glory and honor, but they're not. A single human life is not only more valuable than plant or animal life, human life is more valuable than angelic life. Why else do you think Satan hates us so much? Because any individual human holds a more prized position in the cosmos than him or any other angel. And we know it because Christ laid down his life for people. How valuable are you, human being? You were made in the image of God. You were given glory and honor, even though we're lower than the angels. So you're different. You're different from plants and animals. You're different from angels. But here's another part of the contrast. Humans, while still creatures, are like the Creator. So yes, you're like God, you're not after your own kind, you're designed after Him, but you're still a creature. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. We're still lower than the heavenly beings. This is the third part of the contrast. You're not like plants and animals, you're not like angels, you are like God, but it doesn't make you a God. You're still a creature. So these are the contrasts that are being made here. And when you sum all of this contrast up, you start to realize that humans are sort of a strange anomaly in the cosmos. There's nothing else like us. We're like God, but we're not gods. We're created beings of the earth made from dust, but we're not like the rest. We're not like plants and animals. And even though we're lower than the angels, we've been given authority and glory as our birthright. Human beings stand out in contrast to all things. So that's the first implication in the image of God, all these different contrasts. But here is a second implication. The image of God implies a relationship. The image of God implies a relationship. So if you are an image of or a reflection of God, and this may come as a a shock to some of you, maybe even a, a comfort, what that means is you aren't an image of your father. You're not an image of your mother. We weren't made after our own kind. And for that matter, you're not the image of an ape. You're not a glorified animal. You're not an animal. You're a human being. And what makes you what you are? What makes you an image of God, a human being? What makes you that? God does. You exist in his image. And that means that every human being has some inherent relationship to that God. So they may not have a relationship of intimacy or of personal knowledge of him, but we all exist in relation to to him. So the mere fact that you're human means you have some connection to God because he gives us our humanness. Every human being still has a relation to God whether they relate to him or not. So whether you're relating to God or not, you still have some relationship to him. We were made in his image, so there's a connection. So let's imagine in your mind's eye that a, a, a little baby girl was born on the Titanic, the night that the ship sank. And while her mother and father perished in that icy abyss, she survived. This little infant was taken aboard one of the lifeboats and went on and lived 
her life. And, and, and while she may have never known her parents, perhaps she never even knew their names. She still has some relation to them. Why? Because she came from them. And the same thing is true of every human being. The difference is God's not the one that died. We did when our first parents sinned. So while we may all be drowning in the sea of sin and sorrow and death and decay, unaware of the one in whose image we were created, the relationship, the connection is still there. And while we may not know him, God certainly knows us. And what is that knowledge that he has? God's eye is set upon every image bearer with a compassion reminiscent of parental hope and expectation toward their little child. You know how when a baby's born, mommy and daddy look at that little thing and you feel such expectation and hope and joy for what this little one's life is going to hold. I believe God looks at every image bearer in that exact same way. Compassion, hope expectation. I think that's how God looks at all of us, believing and unbelieving. Now, I'm a Calvinist through and through, and that doesn't sound very Calvinistic. You can throw rocks at me later. Let me finish the sermon at least. I think there's a tension in Scripture when we talk about the image of God in every human being. I believe that God looks at every human being, those who are made in his image, they who were made for his glory, and when he looks at them, his heart with every human being, when he looks at us, his heart is filled with love and with hope and with joy and with grief. Because he sees who we really are. Last week we talked about what is it that gives us our value and dignity. Every human being. It's not your works. It's not your potential. It's not your lack thereof. And when God looks at even an unbeliever, he sees past their sins and he sees his created intent. He sees that they are images of God. What does he see? He sees himself in them. No matter how broken and backward and fallen they are. Listen again to verses 1 through 4 in Psalm 8. Oh, Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? The universe is filled with the beauty and glory and wonder of God. All you got to do is look at the stars to see that, yet God chose people... Even babies be the great source of his glory. Every human being, even those who can't even profess faith with their mouth yet, these human beings exist to shut the mouths of God's enemies with wonder and awe. And it's with that expectation and that intent that God looks at every human being. This is the love that drove Jesus to the cross. In saving and restoring sinners, his glory shines all the more brightly in the world. Listen to how John Calvin put it. The celestial creator himself, however corrupted man may be, still keeps in view the end of his original creation. And according to his example, we ought to consider for what end he created men and what excellence he has bestowed upon them above the rest of living beings. 
Calvin also said in his Institutes that sin is not our nature. Rather, sin is the derangement of our nature. So when we see sin in another person or even in ourselves, that is not our primary identity. On the most primary elemental level, beyond our sin, beyond our works, beyond our potential, every human being is an image of God and intended for glory. Which means that every human being is worthy of love, of dignity, and of celebration. So we've seen the two implications. That's just the implications. That's not even what it means directly. These are the two implications in this idea of the image of God. There's a contrast between human beings and all other living things. And there's an intrinsic relationship to God. Both of these are implied in this idea of the image. But what does it directly communicate? Here's uh, the first thing. The image of God directly communicates royal status. So in the ancient Near East, it's like... Israel, Syria, Lebanon, that whole area, Iraq, Iran. In the ancient Near East, I guess more Middle East, Near East. In ancient Near East, kings and rulers were often referred to as images of their gods. Some cultures actually believed them to be physical manifestations of their gods. You've probably heard this before, like Pharaoh. Pharaoh was considered the literal embodiment of the Egyptian god Horus. So many kings and princes were declared to be, he's the image of our God on earth. That was happening before the Bible was ever written. That idea was already out there in the water. So it was into that culture, into that expectation that Yahweh spoke through Moses in Genesis 1. And what did Yahweh say? Human beings, not just one, but all of them are my image. Here's what that means. That every human being exists as a child of the king. And they are thereby expected to serve as his vice regent. Oh, did I go backwards? I don't know how I did that. This is the problem with putting the preacher in charge of this. There we go. Every human being exists as a child of the king. And they are thereby expected to serve as his vice regent. So in Genesis 1, what does God say? Right after he said, they're made in my image. Then he says, let them have dominion over the earth. He declares, they shall rule, right? In Psalm 8, when he's talked about the glory and the honor of humanity, what does he say next? You've given them dominion over the work of your hands. You've put all things under their feet. This is sovereignty, kingly, queenly, royal language. So God made humans, why? To rule over the earth in God's stead. He left us here. To bring about God's rulership on the earth. We were made to enforce and to bring about God's will on earth as it is in heaven. Does that sound familiar? The kingdom of God that Jesus talked about is what creation has always been about. God put humans here to rule this world in God's stead. To exercise dominion as he would indeed... To reflect his glory, his honor, his will, his justice on this planet as his vice regent, as kind of kings under him. Now, we have not done a good job of this. Adam and Eve didn't do a good job of this. I haven't done a good job of this. None of us have. We have failed in this regard. Therefore, Jesus came to redeem us. But also to restart the kingdom of God. To create a people 
who would bring about the will of God on this planet to rule in submission to God and in God's authority. So everybody saw these pictures of Prince Louis of Cambridge a few weeks ago, right? Did anybody not see these? Prince Louis is Will and Kate's youngest. So Will and Kate, uh, you know, England, right? They're, they have three kids, and they're the same ages as our kids. Uh, we were very offended that uh, the middle one was born on the same day as Audrey. Really overshadowed her coming into the world. So I've got to take a few shots at him in any case I can. Um, so he, Louis was being a pill at the, the Queen's uh, birthday celebration. So we see here he's just getting warmed up. Um, they were doing a flyover. So this is the, the future, uh, you know, and I don't think he'll be the king, but could be, I guess, depending on how things work out. Uh, a ruler of, of England, his view of his loyal soldiers. Poor Kate. You've got to really feel bad for Kate. This is happening on a worldwide scene, and, and now a preacher in Louisiana is, is picking on her. I'm not really picking on her, but he, he, he was just getting warmed up. So as the, the planes continue to fly over, he, uh, he was not happy. Well, you'd think as the day went on, the poor kid, they just let him go home and play with his toys. That's not the case. He had to be seen. So here he is. He's tired of his mother at this point. Uh, that face that he's making, I'm pretty sure that's why the American Revolution happened. That's the look of royalty right there. Uh, and, and one last one, just to cap it all off. Here he is exercising his royal uh, authority. Let's imagine your pastor had been here at this grand event. And I saw Prince Louis acting a fool, and I felt bad for his mother. I'm a parent of kids. I know how it can be. And, uh, and so I decided to just step in between him and Kate to correct Prince Louis, to remind him of his biblical obligation to honor father and mother, and I, and I reprimanded him. What would have happened to me if I had, had done that? Any, any guesses? What's that? I could be beheaded. It's possible. I would be going down. Why? Because he's the prince of Cambridge. And what am I? I am nothing. It doesn't matter what he does. He is royalty. So it doesn't matter if his works are good. It doesn't matter if his works are bad. Prince Louis is still royalty and I am not. His position as a royal child gives him value and dignity above mine in the British system. But who are you? Every human being is made in the image of God. They're royalty. Made after the likeness of God for the express purpose of exercising his will and authority on the planet. That's who you are regardless of what your works are. So there is an expectation and an invitation, yea, a command that you live as God lives, that you rule as God lives in your spheres of influence. But even if you fail to do that, that doesn't mean you have less dignity or less value, or that your life is somehow to be disposed of or set to the side. You have dignity baked into you because you've descended from God. You're a royal child. But that's not the only thing directly communicated in this idea of the image of God. The image of God also directly communicates glory. So kings and rulers were not the only images of God in the ancient Near East. You could regularly see images of God called idols. So you go into a temple, you see an image of God. You go into somebody's house, you might see an image of God. You could walk around town and see statues and paintings that are, again, images 
representations of the gods. And ancient people weren't stupid. They knew that idols weren't actual gods. But those images were used in worship to represent the character of the God who worshipped there. You could look at the idol, look at the image, and you learn something about the God it represented. So let's imagine we had a time machine. We went back to, I don't know, 100 A.D. And you went into the temple of a war goddess. If you walked in and you saw her image, you saw her representation, her idol, what do you think that idol would look like? We'll brainstorm here. Ah, so I saw Scott in the back of this. She might look strong. Okay, how is much? She might have armor on. We can be more colorful than that. Yeah, she, all right. So we, she, maybe she's holding a bow and arrow. Maybe she's holding somebody's head, right? These are images that tell us something about her, right? Let's imagine instead we'd gone into a fertility goddess's temple. What might her image look like? That's right. She... she Often they had multiple breasts, like more than a human would, to demonstrate fertility. Maybe they have fruit around them, or they're holding multiple babies or something like that. But you can look at the idol, you look at the image, and you learn something about the God. That existed before the Bible was written. So into that culture and into that environment, Yahweh spoke. And what did he say? Human beings are my images. They're the ones that represent me. What does that tell us? Not that God has legs. Instead, it's that every human being exists to display the character of God. And despite our brokenness, his glorious character still shines through. We still see something of God in every human being. Now, you no doubt know people who are very unlike the God of the Bible. right? We've all fallen short of the glory of God, Paul says in Romans 3. But that doesn't change who you are. Even after sin, you're still made in the image of God. And we saw that last week in Genesis 9. If you weren't here, let me rehearse what Genesis 9 said. So God created us in his own image in Genesis 1 and 2, right? Genesis 3, we sinned. Sin entered the world and it wreaked havoc in us. It wreaked havoc in our relationships with God and with each other and with the created order to the point that God destroyed the world with a flood. And it's after the flood in Genesis 9 that God said this. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. So even though sin had happened, the image of God was retained after the fall. And that is what gives human life value and dignity. Right? And you see it. You see the character of God in all kinds of people. Even the worst people will still walk a little old lady across the street will do a kind deed. People love. People enjoy each other and enjoy good things. It's the image of God in each of us. We are made after his kind. As I said last week, you're like a mirror. And God is like the sun in the sky. So when we look at human beings, we're not looking at the sun. We're looking at reflections of the sun. Every human being is a reflection of God, but we're not perfect reflections. None of us is exactly like God. We're limited as creatures. We're smaller than God, and sin has cracked our mirror. So when we see each other, we see glimpses of God, warped, distorted glimpses of God, but there's still beauty there. Every human being deep within them has this divine spark. 
something of God to be seen, cherished, and valued. When we look at any human being, we're seeing an image of Yahweh God. Someone that if we look close enough and for long enough, we're going to find a reason for worship. Just like the idols. You look at them long enough, you're going to find a reason for worship. When we look at a human being, we look long enough, we'll find a reason to worship their creator. The implications of this are remarkable. And intentionally, last week as well as this week, I'm trying to challenge and elevate your view of human beings. God has crowned us with glory and honor. But when we value ourselves or others based upon anything else, based upon our works or potential, based upon our consciousness, based upon our loves, based upon our will, when we value them on anything other than the image of God, we value them incorrectly or we devalue them inappropriately. A person's value is found in who they are, not in what they do. And who are they? What are they? They're images of God. So when I say that every human being is an image of God, I'm implying two things and I'm directly saying two things. The first implication has to do with the contrast between humanity, God, and everything else. The second implication has to do with the relationship that every human being has to God merely because they exist as humans. But what's being explicitly described? That every human being is royal in their purpose, in their calling, and in their origin. And that gives them value and worth. And every human being looks like God. Something of God is implanted in them to be seen, to be acknowledged, and to be celebrated to the glory of God. So what do we do with this? For starters, I think we grieve. We grieve that we have fallen short of our created purpose. We grieve that our loved ones have fallen short. We grieve that the world has fallen short. But then we hope. We hope because of the gospel. And that's what we're going to discuss next week. How does the gospel help us return to our created purpose? How does the gospel put these broken mirrors back together so that what is unintentional and unknown to the unregenerate man about dominion and glory... And the life of a Christian becomes a very intentional pursuit as a follower of Christ. So grieve and then hope. There's a new creation being played out under our very noses as God is renewing the images of God among us. These men, women, boys, and girls. Let's pray. Oh God, help us to grieve the brokenness in our lives and the brokenness in our world. But help us to hope. That these images of God that are so beautiful are being restored in Christ. Help us to have hope that the world can experience your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As we trust Christ and as we follow him who is the image of God. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.